This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than Dr Bob Buse. Welcome, Bob. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Andrew. Bob, you've recently been doing a seminar series on masculine vitality. So to start off with, what do you think are the important male sex hormones that control spermatogenesis and fertility? And tell me about the health issues. Where's the research pointing here? Okay. Well, look, the major hormone is actually gonadotrophin-releasing hormone. It's found in the hypothalamus, and it actually hits the anterior pituitary and releases two major hormones. These are follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. So the follicle-stimulating hormone also, of course, is in women, and it, it actually matures the follicle and the oocyte. But in men, it's responsible to actually control spermatogenesis. Luteinizing hormone, which in the women um, is going to maintain pregnancy, the corpus luteum and progesterone, actually is in control of testosterone production. So both follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone are responsible for spermatogenesis, testosterone and fertility. Um, One of the interesting things for me is that um, in all but a couple of my texts, they used to say that the Leydig cells in the testes secreted testosterone. Mm. And this was really interesting to me. Not one of them said produced testosterone. In fact, they produced progesterone Mm. and that it's very quickly converted to testosterone. So do you get any issues at the testy level with that conversion? Um, the actual Leydig cells, to my knowledge, are around the um, testicular um, production plant, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of those seminal vesicles, we have the uh, Sertoli cells. So that the testosterone that comes probably, I mean, if you said it's by progesterone, that, that's probably right. But it goes to the Sertoli cells together with follicle-stimulating hormone receptors. And those Sertoli cells are actually the mother cells or the nurse cells that, that gradually cause the production of sperm over a two-and-a-half-month period from beginning to end. So, of course, women are born with a certain number of eggs. Men are not. They just keep producing sperm if they're healthy right through their life. What's interesting to me is from an embryological perspective, the um, hormonal signals are exactly the same between men and and women. It's just that the um, uh, target cells have differentiated Mm. between the sexes. So um, just like a woman has issues with stress-inducing um, neurological signals with regards to PMT symptoms and things like that. What sort of signals, what, what happens when a male experiences stress? What, are, what sort of issues do we get there? Right. Well, the glucocorticoids, which are, are raised particularly under chronic stress, mm-hmm. also dampen down the production of gonadotrophin-releasing hormone and you tend to produce gonadotrophin-inhibitory hormone. Now, of course, what that does, both of those are going to block 
the production of follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Therefore, <clears throat> less testosterone, less spermatogenesis, the whole thing is kind of dampened down. So stress in the male is really bad for fertility mm. because you're not producing the hormones that's going to control spermatogenesis. But the other thing that happens when you're under stress, there's a thing called um, the pregnenolone steel, and what happens then is cortisol uh, is, not, is actually taking all the pregnenolone. And so instead of pregnenolone manufacturing all of the sex hormones for both male and female, actually, so it also um, applies to the female, you're not producing DHEA, you're not producing androstenedione, dyne, you're not producing testosterone or estrogen or progesterone, and it's all being channeled into the production of cortisol. Mm -hmm. So there's two things there that's causing um, a reduction of some of these sex hormones. And, of course, stress is behind it all. So we have to control stress if we want to have good fertility and we want a good bank of sperm that actually is motile, uh, that's viable and is going to affect the pregnancy. I was just recently speaking to Dr. Mark Donohoe regarding the adrenal function and the issue with chronic inflammation there. And this sort of ties in with that. So what sort of things do you recommend to treat this this um, you know reduction in fertility in the stressed male. Well, the main thing, I mean, when it comes to nutrition, obviously it's really important to get the best nutrition, and for a male that has to happen three months before you're ready for conception. You also need to to lose body fat, mm -hmm. so the fat around the middle, the visceral fat, is. Um, associated with infertility, so that needs to go, and there's many different ways, of course, of, of reducing that. But some of the herbs that are interesting, um, rhodiola and also withania, they're two interesting herbs because um, they're both adaptogens. They help rejuvenation and strengthening of the whole sexual function, but what else they do is they actually inhibit the production of cortisol and also monomine oxidase inhibition. And with the inhibition of monomine oxidase, particularly for uh, radiola, we end up with an increase in serotonin because mm -hmm. it, it maintains the serotonin for a longer period of time. Yeah. So those two herbs actually, um, while they're used as adaptogens and good for stress, will also be able to re reduce some of the cortisol and increase the right sort of uh, neurotransmitters like serotonin. Mm. So let's look briefly about the male sex organs. Why are the testes situated from, a, from an evolutionary perspective? Why are they situated outside the body while the ovaries are inside the body? Well, that's a very good question. And from an evolutionary point of view, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a decorative thing that the female would desire and mm. therefore you know, it helps the whole race keep going. Yeah, yeah. There's a really good reason for it. And you'll find that the, the testes need to be a couple of degrees below body temperature. And this is really interesting because I used to work at CSIRO in animal physiology and we were looking at infertility in sheep. Mm -hmm. And we found that the, um, the sheep export industry was suffering because the dinanoop, the, the clover mm. that had phytoestrogens in <clears throat> was causing miscarriages. Yep. So we were working on that. And one of the experiments we were doing, we took ram testicles and we suspended them in these containers with at 40 degrees, like water at 40 degrees. Oh. And guess what happened? 
Nothing. <laughs> no. Well, firstly, it wasn't that hot. But the rams, actually, they had no fertility. It mm. killed all the sperm. Mm. So one of the most important things, and this is when I'm counselling, I always say, do you have a hot bath? Because if a guy has a hot bath continually, mm. the chances are he's got no sperm that are functional. I, I remember years ago in your um, postgraduate uh, diploma in clinical nutrition on when it was in cassette tape, tape I remember you talking that about um, male fertility and way back then there was some, was it Swedish researchers? All of this sort of stuff comes from Sweden where they, for infertility in males, they actually had ice packs that they used to wear, yeah, yeah, Scro- like scrotal ice but, packs. But they still do. Yeah. Go online, have a look at Google and you'll find scrotal sacks. <laughs> and you, you actually rest the testes in these and you, mm. keep the, you keep the temperature two or three degrees below normal. Right, so not body an ice pack. No, not, well, I, I'm not sure. I haven't been into buying them, Andrew, so <laughs> I don't know this. But if you keep your testes at about two degrees below normal, <laughs> suddenly you become fertile again. So from a practical level, uh, um, loose-fitting underwear... Loose-fitting underwear. Cotton underwear. Right. And get rid of the hot bath. I mean, during this seminar series, I asked everyone in the audience, I said, all the women here, how many women have hot baths? Mm. Mm. 95 to 98% women had really hot baths. Then I said, okay, hands up all the guys who have hot baths. Guess how many? None. One or two. So it's really interesting because men have some sort of way of understanding. They've got to keep the testes below a certain temperature. And that's why hot baths, hot showers, tight underpants are things that always should be avoided if a man wants maximum fertility. And what about the in-trend now with bike shorts and the sports shorts? Are you finding that that's an, uh, an upcoming issue? Well, it could be if it's keeping the testes at a, at a certain temperature that, that's not cool enough. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the testes need to be cool. And I think that that's one of the factors in... Um, a fertility problem in the male. Tell me, though, the difference in that, that temperature requirement. Is there any hypothesis as to why the ovaries need a higher temperature and the testes need a lower temperature? No, I haven't, no. I haven't seen anything. Right. It's it, it just that I know that some kiddies, they have undescended testicles yep. because, you know, it starts up yep. um, inside the body yep. and those with the undescended testicles... High rates of infertility. High rates of infertility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's look at nutrients for mm-hmm. sperm health now. Um, I mean, the classic ones are things like zinc and mm-hmm. selenium, but mm-hmm. what's the importance of them? Well, it's interesting because zinc is really one of the great controllers of testosterone production. And if you have a, a dozen oysters, you, you're getting about 112 milligrams mm-hmm. of elemental zinc. It's mm-hmm. really high. If you have two dozen oysters, you're really having a hit of zinc. Yeah. And that is actually true when people say, oh, oysters are sexy, you know, have it for, you know, when you take your girl out and, and it makes you feel more sexy. Well, it actually does increase testosterone levels. Now, I had a, um, a client once who was unable to affect a pregnancy with his partner and he had pasta for dinner every night and he had no meat. And of course, meat is the high source of, of zinc and iron. So all I did was put him, he had azospermia. He had hardly any sperm at all. Mm-hmm. And for three months, I put him on 50 milligrams of elemental zinc twice daily. And with, at the end of, uh, well, actually end of two months, he was, he was hitting with about 100 million sperm, whereas it was nothing before. And he affected a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And this was just by giving a zinc supplement. Mm-hmm. So it is really important for the production um, 
of testosterone. Selenium itself also is, is one of the drivers in the endogenous antioxidants such as um, glutathione peroxidase. And these are really important because the sperm itself within the testes is, is able to oxidize if you don't have lots of antioxidants. So the other ones that are really important are ubiquinol, of course, which is the, the high uptake form of the um, coenzyme Q10. Also, L-carnitine. People think L-carnitine is just, you know, carrying fats into the mitochondria and burning them and getting energy. But it's also really important for um, reducing inflammation and preventing oxidation. Mm. So L-carnitine and St. Mary's thistle, mm-hmm. um, astaxanthin, all of these, mm-hmm. um, and curcumin. Good old curcumin. Really, really important when it comes to having the right sort of nutrition and the right sort of nutrients when it comes to sperm health in particular. So just talking about the zinc, and you mentioned 100 milligrams elemental. I, I, I remember using 100, around 100. I've gone mm-hmm. up to 150 for around about three months, and then I'd curtail it a little mm-hmm. bit. But I just wanted to point out to the, for the um, listeners that that level of zinc is actually quite safe especially over the short term. If you're going to go short over term, 150 yeah. elemental, then mm-hmm. you might have issues long-term with copper yeah. inhibition, but not short-term. Well, I didn't. With, with this particular gentleman I'm talking about, I didn't worry about the copper. I think mm. up to three months, you're okay. Oh, fine. Yeah. yeah. I but have no but if, it's, if it's like for three or four years, I'd certainly be looking at copper. Mm, absolutely. And what about selenium? What sort of dose did you use? Um, the selenium, I didn't use a dose in this particular gen. It was just zinc, which right. is why we know. But, I mean, if you're using selenium, I mean, 200 micrograms is not a problem for elemental. And uh, what about the dosages of other things like curcumin? The curcumin, um, well, see, I've changed my mind about that now. With with theracumin, mm. I mean, you get much better bioavailability. Um, so, you know, I, it really is up to... Well, I don't know. It's up to the individual as to how much curcumin mm. you want to take. But, I mean, a 500 milligrams, say, of theracumin, I would be taking three or four a day. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, a lot of people are just taking one or two. Mm. So it's just, you know, I think it's such a fantastic supplement in the way. I mean, the the the, the number of enzymes and systems that, that curcumin works on as far as dampening down inflammation is mind-boggling. I still can't quite get over just what a profound effect it has. Just moving on to um, in vitro fertilisation, IVF, and it's uh, what stunned me is the amount of people now that are having to rely on IVF mm, mm. to create a family. Um, but w- tell me about the importance about preparation for IVF in the male rather mm. than just the female. Well, normally, as you know, with, with, with the normal way of having sex... You get hundreds of millions of sperm all racing each other <laughs> up through the cervix, you know, through the uterus, through the fallopian tubes, and it's sort of winner takes all. And, mm. and at the end, you've got the ovum surrounded by, you know, several dozen sperm. But remember, those sperm that are surrounding the ovum have had good motility. Mm. They're probably the healthiest, the most robust. So there's some natural selection, if yes. you like, in just getting there to that point where one of them will actually penetrate the egg and of course you've got a fertilized egg. With in vitro fertilization, if you haven't got the same, you know, ability to discriminate between good and bad sperm, it's quite possible you are going to inject a sperm that might not be one of those that's that's had another couple of hundred million racing 
to get to the top. So the one that actually gets in in normal circumstances, of course, is what you want. So there is a, a potential problem. Not that we see it often. Mm. I mean, most sperm are fairly robust. Mm. But I always say to guys, look, three months before, get rid of the drugs if you possibly can, and particularly alcohol. Um, try and get rid of the fat around the middle. Get active. Get a really good diet and, and undertake some sort of exercise to really get as a maximum um, health of the actual sperm that you're going to introduce in in vitro situation. And um, what about things that we traditionally use for women with preparation for pregnancy, like folic acid and B12? Um, I remember a paper years ago, decades ago, where folic acid was implicated in teratosthesia, in that it basically, if there was an issue with the gene pool of the sperm, it kicked it out. Mm. It killed it. So it had the, uh, almost like a uh, self-regulation of natural selection. Don't let the bad guys win. Okay. Yeah, well, look, uh, all of I am not familiar with that particular one, but uh, the one thing that I do know is that it's too late to start taking folic acid or folacin when you're actually pregnant. It is really important to take it before um, conception. Mm. And I think all of the nutrition we're talking about in both male and female, but particularly the female in the last two weeks, Yeah. For three months, yeah, a female should be getting her act together. But between day one, day zero, say, and ovulation, say, 14 days later, mm-hmm. the actual um, egg, the ovum, grows in mass 200 times. Right. So if there's any toxins around, if there's chemicals and things, it's really going to be affected in those last two weeks. Mm. So it really is important to have the, the folic acid, the zinc, all the things that you want should be in there, particularly in a woman, two weeks before and preferably three months before, but in a male it should be three months before because spermatogenesis is occurring regularly throughout the three months. So, Bob, yeah, you make an important point about that folic acid and the B12 uh, in that you must pre-treat to prevent this. You can't fix an issue. You can't fix a cleft palate once it's occurred. Mm -hmm. You have to prevent that from ever happening. Right. So I, th- I just think that's a really important point to make about the fo- the actions of folic acid, and it stems from there to cardiovascular disease yeah. disease as well. You can't and, and, and heal even, a heart issue. Even iron. I mean, mm. kids that are born mm. iron deficient. Mm. I mean, it's too late to start taking iron halfway through. But iron itself, if you're deficient, that that child is is not going to um, make up for it mm. later on. I mean, you need the iron at the beginning. So all this nutrition has to happen before conception, ideally. Mm. Or if you <clears throat> discover that you are pregnant, I mean, you should be starting to take them because there's a hell of a lot of pregnancy still to go. But the longer you leave it, I think the, the greater the possibility of things going wrong. Yeah. Moving on to another issue with male sexual function, that's erectile dysfunction. How can you differentiate between physical and metabolic problems causing the erectile dysfunction and psychological issues? Yeah, look, that's an interesting one because there are a lot of physical problems and metabolic problems. I mean, obviously, if there's no blood flow getting into the penis, then that is a problem. Mm. Uh, and that is often due to the fact that um, nitric oxide might be down and the things that that dilate blood vessels. But when it comes to uh, a question that could be asked to to actually separate these physical problems from a psychological problem, uh, like performance anxiety, for example, which in in a lot of young men, about one in four young men have this performance anxiety. The question to ask, I think, is do you wake in the morning with an erection? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, and also with thoughts and with touch, is it possible to get an erection? If the answer is yes, 
then it's a psychological problem. Right. And that needs, therefore, they need to be pushed into a psychologist or someone who yep. can handle that. Yep. But if, if no, it could be that they're diabetic, it could be that they've got certain drugs that's interfering yep. and so on. So you can therefore look. But that, they are the questions that I think are pretty simple mm, to absolutely. ask. You know, do you wake with an erection? I mean, because most healthy males will wake in the morning with yep. an erection. Yeah. And what about the herbs and nutrients that you'd use to treat erectile dysfunction? Okay, look, the main one, and I think everyone's heard of this, um, is the Bulgarian tribulus. Yeah. And I say Bulgarian because Indian and some of the other tribuluses, they don't have the same protodiacin, which is a steroidal saponin. And that mm. protodiacin is absolutely the key to this. What we're looking at really is a... Uh, an amount that gives you around about 40 milligrams of protodiacin per tablet. And if you take a couple of tablets a day, you're getting 80 milligrams. Now, that's about the dose you need, mm. and it needs to be the Bulgarian tribulus. Now, if you actually com- um, take the protodiacin, then I'm suggesting you will form DHEA from protodiacin, and the DHEA makes testosterone. So this is an interesting herb. Mm. In America at the moment, there's $1.2 billion sales of testosterone. Wow. And that would be male and female because yep. females are taking testosterone to yep. get a bit of libido. Sure. But that's a hell of a lot of testosterone. Well, here we have a natural herb. As long as you've got the protodiacin at the right level, remember, yep. 40 milligrams twice daily, that's what you're looking for. Now, if you combine that with something like Damiana, now, that is a traditional South American aphrodisiac, mm-hmm. and that could be a great little combination to improve people that have sexual dysfunction, um, certainly, but even to improve normal sexual function. And the other one, of course, is Korean ginseng, which gives um, more energy. So if you need an energy tonic and you need to um, em- enhance your physical performance, throw in the, the Korean ginseng. And finally, pine bark. I mean, pine bark enhances the vessel integrity yeah. and it increases nitric oxide. You get dilation so that um, the, the penis is going to get the right blood flow if that, has, if that is a problem. And people that have hardened arteries and, and they've got a problem and that often happens, you know, with age. So a nice little combination, the Bulgarian tribulus, the Damiana, the Korean ginseng and the pine bark, get that in a supplement and, you know, you, you're cooking with gas. Just looking at safety issues with um, uh, the Bulgarian tribulus, um, will the protodiacin upregulate testosterone to a supra-physiological level? No, no. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a possibility at the no. level that I'm talking about. If no. you take 40 milligrams twice daily, you're not you, – because there's also feedback control. As the testosterone, no matter where it comes from, gets to a certain level, inhibin yeah. will actually go back up to the brain that we were talking about before at the level of the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary and turn it off, mm. basically. Mm. So there's a feedback control I th- that occurs. And also aromatase is one of the enzymes that is going to um, convert the testosterone to estrogen. And so the combination of the estrogen and inhibin, if the testosterone gets a little bit too high, it's going to just turn it off. So it's not a problem. So moving on now to uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH, Mm. what sort of things do you use um, to support healthy prostate 
um, glands. Well, again, if, if we're talking about herbs, while we're on herbs, uh, pygeum is one that was banned a little while mm, back, and mm. I think a, a lot of herbalists out there were very disappointed about this. But we now have wild-crafted strains. It's, it's not a, an environmental problem anymore. We're growing it specifically. So we can use pygeum because it's really high in the um, beta-citosterol. Uh, and this is really important when it comes to down-regulating those enzymes that are responsible for proliferation of the prostatic cells. And that combines really well with Crativa nivala, which is uh, a combination that you would use if there's inflammation and if there's prostatitis. Uh, and so, so any inflammatory infection that, mm. that might occur with the prostate, those two go really well together. And you can add, if you want to improve the urinary frequency, of course, that's always a problem when you've got this benign prostatic hypertrophy due to the squeezing of the urethra. Uh, the ryegrass is really good for that. And also some pine oil. Pine oil that's got, say, 70% of the beta-citosterol mm -hmm. is actually going to reduce dihydrotestosterone in, in about three or four days. They've, they've found that from biopsy that they've taken in um, people that have just had it just for a little period of time. So there's a whole lot of herbs that are really, really important. Dihydrotestosterone, incidentally, uh, is produced from testosterone from the 5-alpha reductase enzyme, and that produces the DHD or dihydrotestosterone, and that's 10 times more active on mm. the androgen receptors, and it actually kick-starts the proliferation of the cells in the prostate. So we really want to um, slow that down. And, and the way to do that, finasteride, I think, work on, mm -hmm. on inhibiting the 5-alpha reductase. But naturally, we can do that with things like zinc, yep. the beta-cytosterols, yep. um, certain fibres if you've got too much oestrogen. Yep. And the pine oil, as I just said. Pine oil yep. as well. All of those. So what about oils? Tell me more about oils that you'd use with um, treating BPH and prostatic inflammation. Ah, well, there's an interesting one. You know, there's five or six studies... Um, that have shown a, a, a correlation between alpha-linolenic acid, which comes from flax oil or linseed oil, as it's also called, and there's four positive associations in the papers that I've seen. Now, it's not saying that it was due to people taking supplements of linseed oil. It just, there's a correlation. There's an association. Now, association doesn't mean cause, but it's out there. Mm. And that's why I think with all of the studies that I've seen on the fish oil, uh, EPA, DHA, it's a much better one to you. For example, I mean, everyone's heard now that Japanese men die with prostate cancer, not of prostate mm -hmm. cancer. And I believe that's because the huge intake of fish that Japanese men have. I mean, there's no one in the world eats as much fish and gets as much EPA, DHA as the Japanese men. So, I mean, when you come back to the foods... I think it's really important to understand that there is a balance. Now, there was a study by the Journal of the American uh, Cancer Institute that, that actually was poo-pooing um, the fish oil, that it was, was causing problems yep. with prostate cancer. But they were looking at selenium and vitamin E. Mm. And this was the select trial. That was a select yeah. trial. And, and this was a confounding factor. And there's, there was no – an association doesn't mean cause. But if you actually look at that, there was no association with EPA. There was and, no association with EPA plus DHA mm. and prostate cancer. It was only the DHA. And anyway, it didn't say whether there were supplements used. It didn't say no. what was going on. Pre-existing so, levels. There was nothing. Uh, Interesting that there's just a recent paper, two uh, and two of those original author, authors are authors in this new paper. And they're looking at this correlation. Mm. 
and they state that um, the EPA and DHA had no bearing on advanced prostatic cancer as no. well. So it's really interesting what's going to come out about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that, that was in the original paper. Yeah. My, yeah. my, my thoughts to this, though, is that we always look for the thing. Mm. I mean, beta carotene is fine unless you're a smoker. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's always this, why do we look for one thing? Ah, well, you know, you're on my pet subject. <laughs> I mean, we this should, is the biological I spare part. I mean, that's why I keep saying, mm. I mean, in this latest lecture series that I've just been giving, I'm yeah. saying, don't take just beta carotene no. by itself. Take it with carotenoid-rich vegetables. Food. And that way, I mean, the reason we have multivitamins and not just B1 or B6 and B, because there's always been problems. You take a huge dose of B6, you're competitively inhibiting the um, other bees. Oxal 5 phosphate yeah. and so on. You've got to have the full family. It's the same with the flavonoids. It's the same with the carotenoids. If you're going to take beta carotene or alpha carotene or cryptoxanthine, astaxanthine, you've got to have it with, with the others. And that means getting the diet right. Don't have junk food with the supplement you're taking. Get all of those things. For example, you want to take broccoli. Uh, there's some really good stuff in broccoli. And if, if you take out the um, indol 3 carbonyl and the dim and et cetera, have it with broccoli. Yes. You know, have broccoli as the food because all those other <clears throat> interesting um, family that is related to the three and come are all in the broccoli, mm. and that way you're not going to have the problem, a pharmacological problem. This is nutritional biochemistry we're talking about. Nutritional biochemistry means an orchestra. Mm. We have to have the full schmear, all of them, not just the horn player bl- blowing in the background. Mm. That's a drug. That's that's pharmacology, mm. right? We're into nutritional complementary medicines, nutritional biochemistry, and that means we need more than just the one thing. So, again, I mean, if you're having fish oil and it's got DHA and EPA and all the rest of the um, related fatty acids in there, it's safer, really, than just taking a huge dose, I believe, of any one particular fatty acid. And that will come out in the wash in the next five years. So, Bob, thanks for taking us through the whole spectrum of uh, male sexual vitality issues, right from fertility to erectile dysfunction and including BPH at the later sort of stages of life. You've given us once again some great pearls of wisdom. That's a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks, Bob. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.